and welcome to Gravity, our podcast on current social, political and cultural issues around the world. Today's podcast looks at international food security with the growing world population and a growing increase in the amount of the world's population that is eating meat, which requires other agricultural produce to harvest, and with rampant desertification and depletion of freshwater resources, limiting our agricultural ability, food security for the world's population is an issue which cannot go unaddressed for our future generations. Our dire predicament is exacerbated by the increase and intensity of stochastic events, such as earthquakes and tsunamis, that devastate entire regions, including their agricultural areas. With resources becoming scarce, there is concern for international conflict, particularly in destabilized regions, over their control. Despite this grave predicament, our current agricultural structure continues to be dominated by big ag, with its ever-increasing immense ecological footprint, which merely exacerbates and accelerates our food security concerns. Here with me today is Mark Ntaris, who works for the Development Associates International's Desenvolve Agricultura Comunitaria project funded by USAID to develop a horticultural value chain in Timor-Leste and improve the economic and social livelihood of its farmers. Mark will further elucidate on these issues, including informing us of developments in Timor-Leste itself, and explore developments in permaculture and sustainable agriculture, and how we can change our food choices for us, our farmers, and the planet. So the world population reached 7 billion in 2011, and is expected to hit 8 billion in 2024. While we still have more people to feed globally, we're facing the effects of climate change and environmental destruction. So what are our biggest food security concerns for the future? Thanks, Alex. Well, it's a very good question. Uh, I just want to give you a statistic that you hear very often, which is that uh, there will be 9 billion people by 2050, but more importantly, that we have to double food production by then. And the reason is not because the population is going to double by then, but because many of the people will be moving into higher income categories and therefore eating more intense diets. So eating diets that rely on production of grain and and, and uh, meat-based diets. So one of the challenges we, we face is that food security is, is not only coming because people need food, but because people need food of a higher intensity uh, to produce. So it's one, of the, it's one of the really contentious issues in international agriculture because the companies involved in international agriculture, they want to double food production, but they also use this as, 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 as a cover for saying that we need to feed the world's population. And I think when you're asking about what are the biggest food security concerns, well, it's going to depend on where people live. Um, some people in, in uh, developing countries, their food security concerns will come around issues related to climate change, uh, deforestation, land degradation. Uh, and for people in some developed countries, uh, food security concerns might come around, uh, I guess, an ageing population, uh, which forces some countries to import more food. And this is leading, in some cases, to land grabs by countries like China and Saudi Arabia in much poorer countries like Sudan and Ethiopia. So you just mentioned land grabs. So what are some of the potential conflicts from food insecurity that you're looking at? And even even in terms of depletion of freshwater sources, I mean, you know, maybe China wants to bet for all those lovely glaciers and the freshwater that they could get from there. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, water is going to be be a big issue, and 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 uh, conflict around water, or at least tension around water. Um, I think this is a really tricky area, and I, I will say right off the bat that it doesn't necessarily follow that water scarcity leads to conflict. So it's often something that people talk about. It can also mean that water scarcity leads to cooperation uh, between neighbouring countries often. Where you might see increased conflict is within countries that don't have a cohesive national identity already. So a lot within a lot of sub-Saharan African countries, for example, where you've, got, you've had, uh, I guess, artificial borders created by the colonial uh, system in the last century, and now you're trying to create an identity in a country like Chad or Central African Republic where water sources might be competed for by, by neighbouring tribes or neighbouring uh, ethno-linguistic groups. I think some of the potential conflicts around water will be in certain parts of the world that are, I guess, uh, at risk of uh, deforestation or desertification. So an interesting area to look out for will be the Sahel in Africa. And you can start all the way from West Africa, a place like uh, Niger or Mali, all the way across to East Africa to Somalia. And we're already seeing the seeds of, of those conflicts uh, over the last couple of decades. But they may intensify as des uh, desertification creeps down towards the equator. And also, uh, people have to move to where to where water food sources are. So, so uh, th there are those potential conflicts. I don't want to s say specifically that conflicts will occur, but unless they're managed by by national governments and international agencies, uh, you're going to see see certainly more tension in in countries like Kenya, uh, for example, where you might have herders living close to people who farm uh, nomadic peoples or people who farm the land permanently and you're going to see different systems clashing there uh, as the water scarcity issue uh, starts to affect people. So this affects food security too because agriculture needs a lot of water, correct? Yeah, that's correct and certain types of agriculture require more water. So so if you're talking about land grabs, uh, if you're using huge chunks of land for irrigated agriculture, uh, which is often not replenishing the water tables or it's depending on on, on diversion of, of mountain waters through dams, for example. What you may see is, is uh, indigenous or local people, depending on a water source, not having the same level of access to that water source because it's being diverted uh, for large tracts of land that are going to be growing food for some, uh, perhaps some wealthier countries. So that's where we might see some tension, uh, particularly again in Africa, uh, but also in, in India, we know that uh, there, are, there is a lot of uh, water-related conflict because the, the general water tables are being depleted at, at, a, at a rate faster than they are being replenished. So in terms of conflict in transboundary areas, I hope for peace parks. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think peace parks are, are sort of uh, have become a bit more... I guess, uh, popular or fashionable, some people might say. Uh, they provide potential for cooperation along, the, along those transboundary issues. I think we've yet to see it in a scenario where there's a real, real water scarcity. So you may have a peace park in, in, uh, in uh, Costa Rica or somewhere like that, uh, which has an abundant water. I'm not aware of, of them being used uh, yet as a way to manage water-specific conflict, say, in a place like 
like um, Chad in in West Africa, where you've got uh, competing national interests in Ni- Nigeria and and Chad and and uh, Cameroon there with with growing populations around that lake. Right, but and definitely severely depleted. The, the, yeah, severely depleted and. Um, and we have to be careful here as well. Sorry to sound very academic about it, but depletion is often is not only because of uh, perhaps large-scale government policies or multinational operations. It can also be be because of uh, uh, the way local people handle the water source, uh, population growth, uh, or um, particular land movements that haven't brought along traditions to manage that water sustainably. Uh, and often it's because of um, climatic factors. It could be linked to climate change, or it could just be it, it could be drought uh, over many over many years. It could be changing rainfall, which is always a combination of natural factors and human factors. Right. So these are quite complex issues. That's why I, I'm I'm always very careful to say that. That these can also create cooperation if they're managed correctly. Right. We have a common enemy or common cause. But talking before about agriculture being dominated by our multinational corporations or big ag, uh, what's the environmental impact of big ag in terms of deforestation, water depletion, contamination, greenhouse gas emissions, its ecological footprint? Well, it's it's huge. Um, it cannot be, be underestimated. Uh, if you look at, um, let's just single out deforestation for a second. I think in the 80s when people were worried about deforestation, they were thinking about uh, the purchase of, uh, of products for wood uh, and they were thinking about things like sustainable timber uh, and, and use of forests for wood chips, for example. But now very much what we're seeing is, uh, particularly in, in two parts of the world, in, in uh, Brazil, the first part, and the second part would be in, in Indonesia, uh, in Brazil, for example, you're seeing huge parts of the Amazon being destroyed simply to grow soybeans. Uh, now, if, we, if you know anything about Brazilian food, you know that soybeans are not a part of the diet right. in Brazil. And in fact, they're not even being used to feed human beings. The soybeans that are being grown in Brazil at the expense of the Amazon are being used to feed the, the cattle uh, in countries like the United States, but also now increasingly in China and in Europe to feed the livestock that provides uh, our steak sandwiches and our, our lovely McDonald's burgers. So, mm. so we have this perverse situation where we're not really growing food to feed people, we're growing food to feed cows, which then feed people, which is, uh, as you know, a very inefficient way of growing food. The other example is, just for deforestation, is in, in, in Indonesia. Uh, and, of course, this is palm oil. And this ah. is a monocultural... Monoculturalization of of uh, formerly diverse, very diverse tropical rainforests uh, in Borneo and in other parts of Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, which are being cleared at a rapid rate to grow palm oil, which we use not only in our food uh, for our fast food and our, our oil. Uh, it's a cheap and, and, and in a way an efficient oil to grow, uh, but also we use in a lot of uh, cosmetic products. Uh, and pretty much um, hundreds of products on the shelves that we use include palm oil. So these alone are accounting for a huge amount of deforestation, which in itself accounts for around 20% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Um, yeah, and of course you mentioned other things there like contamination. I guess general pollution from agricultural runoff in concentrated agriculture is, is huge. 
and is something that we don't talk about much, particularly from nitrogen fertilizers. Right, like uh, the dead, create dead zones the in dead the zone. ocean. Yeah, that's right. The dead zone. Um, there's an interesting statistic, uh, um, which I, I, I recall, where the dead zone at the end of the Mississippi in the Gulf of Mexico uh, is, is, is uh, huge in compared to the BP oil spill, which we saw a few years ago. But yet, because it's happened over a long period of time, it is defined as a creeping environmental problem. We don't really talk about it, but actually the damage from, from the, the, the contamination there is, is, is outweighs greatly the, the, uh, the oil spill, the BP oil spill. Another thing I want to just point out, Alex, which is really, really important issue, which people don't, don't talk about a lot, is soil degradation. Right. So you may have heard of uh, peak oil, of course, and, and the right. sort of the, the peaking of the availability of fossil fuels. Uh, but some people uh, believe that peak soil is actually a bigger problem because we've eroded the world's topsoil so much to produce our industrial agriculture that we're going to be increasingly dependent on, on GM crops and other technologies that, that mean that we don't need to use soil because we've actually taken the soil away. Uh, the alternative to that, which I hope hmm. we get to talk about, is that we can actually replenish the soil uh, and give back to the soil uh, in, in more sustainable agriculture. It's great that you say the BP oil spill, because in the US, the terminology is the Gulf oil spill, which I'm sure that BP had some great PR company to achieve that. But it's interesting to hear the BP <laughs> oil spill, I think. We say the Exxon Valdez, right? Disaster. We don't say that. I don't even know where that was. Somewhere in Alaska. We don't say whatever bay disaster. But anyway. Um, so in terms of what you were just saying, replenishing the soil. Now, one of the things that Big Ag keeps telling us is that you know, we need food security and sustainable agriculture just doesn't cut it. So can we have food security with sustainable agricultural practices? That's a, that's a, that's a very big question. I'm, I'm going to give another nuanced, what I hope is a nuanced answer. I think that uh, if you, by sustainable, you're referring to organic, uh, generally organic right. agriculture. Organic. I think in much of the world, organic agriculture is the answer um, because of the fact that uh, soil in particular can be utilized for future generations rather than uh, depletion of which we've seen in, in places like the American Dust Bowl and, and uh, in, in much of the world. Uh, there may, however, be parts of the world where, where organic agriculture, the product, high productivity from organic agriculture that we can see in some countries will be more difficult simply because of the nature of the soil. So, uh, soil that is either very acidic or very alkaline as a result of, of thousands or millions of years of, of its existence uh, is going to require more inputs. And in some cases, uh, it makes sense for farmers to use different inputs. And that's not a popular, that may not be a popular statement in, in, some, in some circles. But overall, I think the, the answer for, for sustainability uh, through organic agriculture it has to be the way because um, the alternatives to use fossil fuels are not only polluting, but they're also limited. They have a lifespan uh, of one or two generations, and, and that's just not sustainable uh, for, for any of us. Um, so I would, I would say that sustainable agriculture, by definition, is the answer, um, but right. it's going to need to be – be, we're going to need um, different tools in different parts of the world, and you can't just have the same – 
system used in different countries. So when we're talking about development and and assistance given to farmers in Africa, well, it, it can't be either a, a, a sort of a uh, a complete approach of of GM, which which is is completely imposed and and uh, and doesn't really understand the the complexities of agri- agriculture in those countries. Nor can we just have people going in saying, you know, romanticising about traditional agriculture because traditional agriculture in some parts of the world has been a real struggle. So we shouldn't forget that, that people had to work very hard to cultivate the land, perhaps harder than they've had to work in, in Tuscany or places which we've romanticised over the years. I understand that you're saying you've got to fit the seed to the soil pretty much. So, for instance, in a dry area, you shouldn't be putting down alfalfa that's going to take a lot of water. Now, do we have a problem with monoculture crops that are popping everywhere around the world? Everyone's <clears throat> growing the same crop that might not even be suited to the land that it's grown on, and we might have other issues in terms of losing our biodiversity of seed. Yes, yeah, certainly monocultures are, are a losing battle. I think they, they again, they're a short-term fix for people. Um, what, uh, as your listeners will know, what, what you get with monocultures is you get... Uh, you, you reduce the ability of plants to resist pests and diseases because they don't have that biodiversity which which manages the system overall. So let's say you're growing uh, soybeans uh, you or, or cotton or corn or whatever, um, the pests that are attracted to that uh, will not uh, be distracted by other, other plants within that system and therefore people are pushed to apply... Um, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, all sorts of sides you can think of. And, of course, we know what happens in nature. You, you may eliminate a pest for a couple of years. You may eliminate 99.9% of uh, a pest that attacks your cotton crop, a particular worm infestation, for example. But the 0.1% of the, the pests that you don't eliminate survive, and, of course, they breed and they produce, a, I guess, a stronger pest that uh, again attacks you and you have to therefore um, uh, apply another round of, of uh, pesticide and, and so the cycle goes on. The other risk of monocultures at the, at the human level, of course, is that, uh, that there are high risk for farmers in terms of their insurance against uh, drought or flooding or, or, or pests and disease because if, you're depending, if your income is dependent on one crop and something goes wrong, then you don't have that diversity of, of assets or investment to, to actually uh, withstand that. And that's why you see in places like uh, in northwest India, you've seen a lot of the suicides of the cotton farmers right. in Rajasthan and the Punjab. Because, one uh, every 30 you know, they, seconds. They, one every 30 seconds, is yeah. it? Well, that's what the that's, NYU that's, uh, Law School had a, a research project on it a few years ago in 2010. It was one every 30 seconds in um, Uttar Pradesh. Oh, Uttar Pradesh. Sorry, yes, yes. So it's a, it's a, in several parts of India, and it, yeah, yeah they're, they're a losing battle. And apart from the fact that monocultures, um, uh, if you, if you are using all those those pesticides, you're damaging the soil as well, and right. you're, you're making the soil uh, you're rendering it useless. It's a downward spiral. But on the topic of monocultures, but just a bit of a tangent. Earlier you mentioned palm oil and the deforestation in Borneo. One of my issues earlier with the Kyoto Protocol and the carbon trading program was that 
uh, people that were trying to trade their carbon credits were actually cutting down native forests, such as in Borneo, and planting trees that were fast-growing trees, such, such as acacia and pine and eucalyptus. And so you, you have trees that are being planted, which should be good for the environment, but actually a huge monoculture forest with no life. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, certainly, um, I think you're referring to the red red programs, reduced right. emissions for deforestation and, and degradation. Certainly, well, we know that in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and other places, they've been open. Like, I guess any system in in a developing, in particular in developing countries, but in in, in any countries really, are open to corruption and and the exploitation of that, taking advantage of the the new programs that exist and some of the loopholes in those to to claim credits for for planting some new new pine plantations, for example, or things like that. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely an issue. I'm not an expert on... I don't know that much about the red stuff, but I do know that it's it's um, it's been open to exploitation. Uh, having said that, I think that it has to be part of the solution. Uh, it, we can't... Um, the alternative to throw our hands up in the air and say, all oh, these programs don't work is... Is not a is not a sort of a long term answer. I think that people need to be paid to protect old growth forests. Right. Um, at the moment, that's just the way the the world works. Uh, money does make the world go round at the minute. Yeah. Um, but the other thing we should <clears throat> we should also be encouraging <clears throat> and recognising is that carbon is not only stored in the trees, uh, whether it's old growth or, or new growth, but it's also stored in soil and it's also stored in grasslands. So I'd like to see in the future a more comprehensive approach to to protection of all uh, ecosystems, not just tree tree based ones, because they they do store carbon, but also grasslands and and um, and soil generally stores stores uh, carbon. I'm, I might just say there what, what I think we need in the long term is for farmers to become custodians of the land, perhaps like many of them used to be, and to be managers and cons- conservationists rather than simply exploiting the land, which, of course, economies will push farmers to do. In terms of permaculture, sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, what are some of the developments that we're seeing today that could put a positive light on things? Yeah, I mean, it's always good to, uh, to be positive because it does all sound a bit depressing sometimes. Look, I think, I mean, I've recently been lucky enough to do a permaculture design certificate. For those who don't know, permaculture really is, is a an abbreviation of permanent culture, the idea that you can continually farm, utilise the land in a sustainable way, uh, just like uh, many of our forebears have done over the centuries. If there's one thing that for me really defines permaculture, it's the fact that the phrase that we hear, garbage in equals garbage out, is almost made redundant by permaculture. Because what we think of as garbage uh, generally is kept within the system and used again. So every weed, every invasive species, uh, any sort of waste that we have, whether it's from uh, the from uh, a septic tank or it's from our grey water systems, uh, our laundry or our, our kitchen waste, all of that goes back into a permaculture system. And so what you end up having is a permanent culture where you can use your... You can recycle your water. You can reuse... Uh, waste from the kitchen and you use animals in an effective way to manage that process as well so you use your cow poo you use your chickens uh, you use your chicken poo you use um, you use your human poo if you like to put back into the system um, 
And of course, these permaculture initiatives are only on a small scale at the minute, but the the idea behind it uh, and the the, the co-originators of that in the 70s was that that eventually, you know, you have a global movement whereby every resource that we, every bit of waste is is a, is a resource, uh, rather than at the minute where we basically we lose out twice because we use uh, non-renewable resources and we throw them out and we create more pollu- pollution problems, uh, which are often unseen. So, what are some of the developments you're seeing on the ground in Timor Leste, where you work now and where you live, in terms of permaculture and sustainable agricultural practices? It's uh, quite intriguing because I'm, I'm living in, in Timor Leste, which some of your listeners will know is, is uh, uh, a small Southeast Asian country near Indonesia, where whereby actually a lot of people um, are not even at the point yet where they can afford to use agricultural inputs like fertilizers and pesticides. So they're in, in many ways practicing uh, sustainable agricultural systems. Uh, the problem here is, however, that often the yields aren't high enough and they're not able to provide enough nutrition for themselves. Uh, and just to give a statistic, 58% of children in, in Timor are currently malnourished and, and will suffer uh, some form of stunting. Uh, and that's not, that's not because of, uh, of uh, use of industrial agriculture. It's, op- it's actually the opposite problem. So, unfortunately, the dominant international paradigm around agriculture is to increase inputs like fertilisers, uh, pesticides, and to mechanise agriculture to increase the yields, which in itself is not a bad thing, but what it ends up doing is making farmers dependent on those inputs and, of course, um, we know the, the, the environmental problems that come along with that. The, what I'm seeing on the ground is, uh, I guess, different models, different approaches to agriculture. Governments are very much focused on increasing yield through more through monocultures, more through sort of focusing on growing rice or corn or peanuts or whatever it is, whereby a lot of, uh, on the other hand, a, a lot of NGOs might... Uh, be be focused on on doing uh, more efficient, high yielding uh, multi cropping systems uh, of vegetables. Nutritious, focusing on nutritious vegetables. And one of the interesting things there is that, <coughs> uh, despite all the investment that's been put into industrial agriculture, the most efficient agricultural systems in the world are not monocultures. They're actually polycultures, often in urban and peri-urban environments where you're growing a whole lot of different plants in a small area. And that's where we're hoping that people, someone like myself's hoping, working in this sector, I really hope that we focus more on those uh, systems because of the fact that they can also be more nutritious. One of the issues in Timor and in, in several countries is that, uh, and these are cultural issues as well as economic issues, um, the consumption of rice is in itself seen as a meal. Uh, so, for example, we know in, in Chinese the word to eat literally means have you eaten rice yet? Huh. And, and um, I think it's han in Chinese. And, and um, I think that's a trend in, in much of Asia, particularly where people were, were uh, in previous eras, I guess, just to get a meal was, was a privilege. And, and I think that what, what you're seeing in some countries is consumption of these crops like rice and wheat and corn which are dominating the international agriculture trade, but people aren't actually getting the nutrition they need. They, get, they may be getting calories, but they're not getting nutrition. So one of the weaknesses of the international system for agriculture is it's focused on 
high-yielding, uh, high-carb crops rather than uh, you know, contributing to people's nutrition, which at the end of the day keeps people alive. It's not um, simply carbohydrates, but it's about having a balanced diet and being able to develop as a human being. So in terms of eating a local, ecologically sustainable diet, can you tell me a little bit about eco-villages that are popping up, for instance, uh, Konohana and other eco-villages around the world? Sure. Well, there are they're definitely what I call, I guess, some local and, and, and micro or mini food movements going on uh, in mainly at the moment in developed countries where people have had a reaction to the industrial food system. Uh, I was very lucky uh, enough to spend some time at the Konohana Eco Village in Japan, where I, I lived in Japan for four years and, and would often visit uh, this particular eco village uh, at the foot of Mount Fuji, uh, a couple of hours west of Tokyo. And they seem to have a very interesting model. Uh, they fed regularly 50 to 60 people who lived on the farm, and they had more than 100 crop varieties which they grew uh, with almost no inputs. Uh, and um, they, worked, they did work very hard, but they grew all of this on, on about 10 to 15 acres of land. So they, they, it's a very efficient way of, of growing food because to feed 60 people for a whole year on, on that small area of land is, is quite phenomenal. Um, they were organic. Uh, they did use something called EM, an effective microorganism, which was one of their inputs. Uh, but something that contributed to their success... Uh, was the fact that they ate very seasonally because of the fact that they were producing their own food. Uh, in winter and in autumn in particular, they were fermenting a lot of food uh, using traditional Japanese foods. And, of course, that the fermented foods are extremely healthy for people. So they're not only using the food that they're grown, but they're using it in an effective way to cover for themselves during the leaner periods, say in winter. You mentioned an organism that they used, EM. Could you just explain what that is, please? Well, the effective microorganism, uh, it's just simply a a very, uh, I guess at a very micro level, it's an input into agriculture. Some people who are purists perhaps uh, may not agree with this as an input, but for them, they've decided that this, is something that could help stimulate their soil and the productivity of their soil, the effectiveness of their soil. Uh, and so this is this is a case where particular communities decided that this input is okay. So I think obviously uh, that they have a very sort of moral approach to the way that they they treat their land and they don't eat meat and things like that. But sometimes you uh, within the within these sort of communities there are different opinions as to what is an acceptable input and what is not. But um, an effective microorganism is just is just a way of being able to stimulate uh, the soil matter. Um, just about, I mean, it's, Konohana is just one example from Japan. Most of what they're doing is really just drawing from what perhaps these people's grandparents used to do before you had uh, chemical agriculture. But essentially, most of these movements, if, you, if you're interested, if your listeners are interested, uh, it's worth looking up the Transition Towns Movement which uh, is big in the UK in particular, and a guy called Rob Hopkins who leads that. And these are not only farms, if you like, but farming communities who have also set up their own currencies so that they can trade outside the, the, the rest of the economy and trade goods in between themselves and basically support themselves by providing services to each other as well. 
So they give themselves food security as well as ensuring that their food is organic and that they're narrowing the ecological footprint. And we can't really wait for big ag to do it because unfortunately all they care about is profit. And when you mentioned before the three big crops that A, are water intensive, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and B, you said they don't provide enough nutrition for people. In the end, they're very politically powerful, particularly in the United States, and they really just care about profit. So then is the answer to supply our food locally from these transition towns <laughs> and support well, them? Well, I think, I, I think again, it depends on, on where you live. If you are living in, in New York City, it's going to be a lot harder. And I know that New York is a real hotbed of these really sort of imaginative food movements and, and um, ventures that are going on, uh, you know, whether it's something like a little herb garden or growing stuff on roofs or right. whatever it is, that there's interesting stuff going on. The, the, my, my belief is, I, I haven't digged into the statistics enough, but I think that to provide some of our staple crops in an urban setting like that will be difficult um, because certain plants just require more space. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to buy everything locally. I think people need to find a balance. So I often say that, that there are different motivators for people when they buy food. Some people look for seasonal Right. Some people look for organic. Some people look for even biodynamic. Some people look for local. Some people look for fair trade. Uh, and some people look for perhaps uh, in relation to animals, that the, the, there's been no animal cruelty. These are all noble pursuits in themselves. But I think what I always say to people in these conversations is don't beat yourself up over the fact that you may not be able to get something that's always local, that's always organic, or that's always seasonal. So if you can... Do as much as you can, say, get to get you know 80% organic or 80% local or whatever it happens to be. That's that's great. But everybody has different dietary requirements. And if you need to eat more nuts as part of your diet and you're living on the East Coast and you can't get, I don't know, peanuts grown locally or whatever it happens to be, right. then you may just have to compromise. So and and not to sort of not to sort of uh, lose any lose too much sleep over that. Unfortunately, um, not to sound like an economist, which I'm not, but what we have to do to, to address this problem is we have to send a signal back to the market that we are willing to pay for good quality, nutritious local food or seasonal food or organic food. And so that means you're asking about what we can do to reduce our footprints. Actually, right. we probably have to pay more for our food. And that's not something people want to hear, particularly I know in the United States and in Australia where I'm from. People want to hear that something is competitively priced. They want organic food to be cheap, as cheap as normal food. It's not going to be because right. you're paying the real price for it. And so what we've got to start doing, and it's going to have to start with the middle classes for now, unfortunately, we've got to start paying the real price for our food. We've got to pay the carbon footprint and we've got to pay the cost to the soil and to the water. Uh, and that means we're probably going to pay more for our food and probably we should be eating a bit less and we should be supporting people in our local area. Right. And unfortunately in the US we have a little bit of a problem with labeling. Sometimes not everything is accurate. Other countries are better at that. But what we have, for instance, in New York and uh, popping up all over the US is that we have these farm cooperatives so that 
you support a farm, say, four hours away, and they provide you with nine servings or 12 servings of vegetables a week, and they also can provide you with milk and eggs, but unfortunately, you don't have that in the winter. It's actually not that expensive. So it, it, it's really a, a beautiful way to support local agriculture and the economy and get organic food and reduce the ecological footprint of the food miles. This is popping up around the world. It's actually, I mean, when I mentioned Konohana, I should have also mentioned the fact that they're not an isolated community. And one of the things they do uh, is, is that they actually sell their excess produce to uh, city slickers in Tokyo and you can order a box of vegetables weekly and you can order some of the other things they produce and that's what my my wife and I used to do when we were living there and um, one of the things about that it was that first of all it was quite it was well priced it was $20 equivalent for a box of vegetables um, which was which which effectively the same price as whether if we'd have gone to the supermarket and bought the chemical agriculture produced uh, equivalent I guess but the second thing about that was you didn't get to choose what was in your box you right. see you right. got that week what nature provided so if there is one thing and I'm I try not to be too critical but I think there is one thing that that uh, we've also got to start doing is we've got to start eating what's available and just because we don't like it doesn't mean we shouldn't eat it because we've been so trained to eat for what we like and what we think tastes good, that we, our tastes have morphed into to going for the easy options for bread and for, for rice and things like that. Um, if I could just give a shout out for bitter foods, we don't, and I mentioned fermented foods before, right. we don't tend to, in the West, eat a lot of uh, bitter foods, fermented foods. Uh, we eat the occasional pickled thing because it's often very sweet, but but um, we need the balance of flavors like, uh, I guess, traditional Japanese diet has, which, which provides your bit of foods. With, it's in, included, it's, it's integrated into the diet. And right. we don't have that in the West. So, and I think part of that is learning to eat the things that we used to think uh, were, were yucky as kids. And we got away with it because we live in a free society and we can choose what we eat. And I think that's been a bit destructive. So... I would encourage people to just order a box and just eat what eat what is in the box and use that to your advantage and, and learn to cook new things in new ways. There's, there's much to be learned uh, from nature about how we can prepare foods. And it's all been done before. You don't have to do anything new. just have to talk to some older people about it and they'll, they'll be able to tell you. I think you're correct. I think the principle that we have right now that we can just eat whatever we want, we go to a shop and we buy it. I can get avocados all the time, even in the dead of winter during a snowstorm. But I, but I remember when I was a kid, because I grew up for the Iron Curtain was taken down, that we did not have that. We ate what was in season. And I remember in autumn, it was a whole big process for my grandmother to pickle everything for the winter. You weren't getting really fruit in the winter. So that seemed fine. And now when I think back on how I used to eat as a kid, I think that's just... I didn't have a banana in December, you know. <laughs> so I think I think you're right. That is a great challenge because most people, you know, and it's there. It's really hard also not to be tempted. If you really want a banana and it's in the middle of a snowstorm, probably going to eat it. So I'm not sure what campaigns we could do to help people realize that this is good for the planet. I think we have to attack people's consciousness more than anything, I guess. Yeah, and I think you might have to, you know, we might have to confront people occasionally. And we, we do have to give, we do have to 
understand the, the, the paradox of choice, uh, the idea that, that uh, Michael Pollan and other people talk about. When you walk into the supermarket and you think you've got all this choice, and in fact you don't, you have really, uh, at some level you do have choice because you have something that's available all year round, which nature doesn't provide all year round. But on the other hand, most of the foods in packets are just providing the same old processed, uh, there really is garbage. Uh, um, just, can I just refer back to what you said about labelling? Right. Again, I think that one of the issues with labelling that we, we get very sort of caught up with in, in Australia and, and the United States and other so-called advanced countries is, I mean, most of the time we shouldn't be looking at a label. I think once we get into labelling, that's we've, we've lost the battle because companies and governments will use, or companies in particular, will take advantage of labels to take advantage of them for their own gain, not for your gain. They will always try and trick you so that you buy their product. And that's part, of, that's part of the game. So for me, I try and buy something that either doesn't have a label or if it has a label, it's got the most basic label ever. It will say, for example, chickpeas, organic, and the country it's from. And you will be tricked sometimes. I think that's part of it. I don't think, and again, I don't think we should bash ourselves up over it if occasionally we buy something that's mislabeled. But I would say most of the time we should be buying fresh enough food and whole grains and things that don't require a label. As soon as you start processing food and adding sugar to it, uh, you, to go back to nuts for an example, if you're buying nuts, don't buy them salted. Don't buy them coated in sugar. Just buy right. plain nuts. All right. That's, I mean, that's, that's a strict approach. But you don't have to worry about the labeling games then. Uh, and occasionally you will be tricked, and I think we just have to live with that because at the moment there's not uh, there's not that oversight from the government. And that's why buying locally and buying at the farmer's markets where you talk to the person who, who right. grows your nuts or who at least is one step away, you develop a trust-based relationship. And that's where I would try and focus my energies on. It's going to be harder if you live in Oakland or, or some ghetto in, in one of those horribly cold United States cities. But... Uh, Actually, Eventually Oakland's that, pretty that pretty sunny, and uh, it's becoming very gentrified. All oh, right, there you go. I mean, I saw something on it a couple of years ago. I know it's not in a, in a cold place, but I know that it was it was. They were talking about food deserts, and and I think that because right, one of the, the things, yeah, one of the problems is that when people like me talk passionately about about you know how you can eat better, of course, it's it's much harder for some people, and I recognise that, and I think I think that it's going to be really difficult. You can't. Um, you can't, uh, many people on lower incomes and in some locations are really going to struggle. Uh, having said that, people make great efforts to uh, pay for the latest technology or clothes or pay television or whatever it is, but they don't make an effort to go across town to buy some fresh food. So it's also about what our priorities are. And um, that's why I think talking to other people and educating others is important as well. Maybe we do have to spend longer uh, buying things in, in the kitchen uh, rather than expecting convenience to provide all the answers for us. That's true, but if you're in a very labor-intensive job earning $7.25 an hour, it's very hard. And in, in the desert zones, and there are plenty. Detroit is rampant, for instance, with desert zones where all you can get is fast food. There are not even supermarkets where you can go to get fresh food. So you don't even have the choice of cooking anything at home. And I think that that's a major problem here. And I'm sure in some other countries as well. But if the rich people can afford the organic local food and feel good about themselves and be 
nutritious and the poor people eat food that's bad for them and is making them sick, that's a problem. It's yeah, increasing I think inequality. Right. I, don't, I don't think there's easy answers. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, um, I'm not sure what the answers are. Maybe it is a combination of, of um, by people trying, you know, those of us who can afford to, uh, paying more for, for better food, but also, um, you know, using the methods and means available to us through democracy, whether it's by protesting or setting up initiatives, setting up non-government organisations, community farms, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I know I was reading that in, in Philadelphia there's a plethora of, of um, community farms and initiatives popping up in some of these food desert areas. One of the challenges is that people from the outside coming in to set up these initiatives uh, with the best of intentions but uh, not uh, doing as much as they could to really engage the local population. And I think that's why it's going to take time because people, people know what they know and, and introducing them to new models of eating is going to take a lot of, a lot of time and it's going to require building of relationships, probably between those of us, uh, some of us who can afford to and, and, and people who are less, less able to at this point in time. So you're right, it's, it's going to be really tough if you're living in Detroit. But hopefully not a lost cause. <laughs> Maybe even the labels will be appropriate soon and when you get your steak, you'll have a picture of the Amazon destruction, like when you buy cigarettes in Australia and you see lung cancer, you know, oh, we can hope. But well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, you know, you know, knowledge is power. So I think the more people are aware of, of how their food choices impact, uh, not only their own bodies, but the the body of, of a mother earth, so to speak, like that. That is going to be, that is going to help people make better choices in the long term, and that's why I think, yeah, for every person that makes a transition, they they should they should lead and and inspire a couple of other people to come along with them as well. Well, hopefully, you've inspired a few people or more, as many people as possible. Hopefully, with your answers. Uh, well, I was going to say this morning, but I guess it's tonight for you. So thank you very much for taking the time to be on Gravity and talk about what you're doing and permaculture and the issues that we're facing in terms of the unsustainable agricultural practices that the majority of the world is fed upon. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for inviting me on to Gravity. I have to say I'm very, I feel very pri privileged to have a platform to, to go on a little bit of a rant about the issues that I'm passionate about, but I, I do uh, believe they're, they're really important and I hope your listeners... Uh, can inspire other people to, to eat better and um, in the process hopefully uh, help uh, protect our planet uh, because at the moment the way what we're doing is um, is not leaving us with a, as good a future as we might have. So, yeah, eat local, eat fresh and um, talk to other people about it. That would be my, my message signing right. out. And to quote one of your articles, you said, vote with your fork. So... I will try to do that, and I hope other people will too. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Have a great night. Thanks, Alex. That was Mark Notaris, who currently works for the Development Associates International's Desenvolve Agricultura Comunitaria project, funded by USAID to develop a horticultural value chain in Timor-Leste and improve the economic and social livelihood of its farmers. You can read his articles on international environmental and food security issues at Our World, located at ourworld.unu.edu, no spaces, where Mark was a writer and editor from 2009 through 2011. 
Our world is part of the United Nations University in Tokyo, where Mark was a researcher in the Peace and Security section from 2008 through 2010. Today's episode of Gravity is sponsored by Buddy Brewing. Buddy Brewing is a young experimental pico brewery building a reputation in New York's Lower East Side. They make bold, flavorful beers that defy style norms and exceed most beer drinkers' expectations of what can be made on an apartment balcony. You won't find the beer in any New York City bars just yet, but you can keep track of their activities and upcoming tastings at buddybrewing.com. Thank you for listening to Gravity. I hope this interview has been informative and you will join us next time.